Welcome to Women Read Scripture. I'm Mariana Richardson. And I'm Christine Thackeray. And I'm Tristy Pinkston. And Tristy, we are so glad to have you here with us again this week. It's just a pleasure to have you with us in this discussion. Well, thank you for inviting me. I'm having fun. Good, good. <laughs> That's the point. That, <laughs> that is. Uh, today we're going to be talking about Luke 22 and John 18, and our focus is really on the atonement. But before we get into that discussion, I did want to talk about just two um, smaller little points. And there's a reason for me going into these smaller little points. The first one's found in John 18.5, where we have this kind of an interesting little point that happens that a lot of people have had a question about. And in 18, I'm sorry, it's 15 to 16. And Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. That disciple was known unto the high priest and went in with Jesus into the palace of the high priest. But Peter stood at the door without. Then went out that other disciple, which was known unto the high priest, and spake unto her that kept the door and brought in Peter. So the question is, who is that other disciple? And just doing a little bit of research in terms of the speculation with Bible scholars, this disciple is almost certainly John himself, because he talks about himself as the other disciple in other places as well, many times. And he, like I said, talks about himself in the third person. But scholars also suggest that John's mother was Salome, who would have been the sister of Jesus's mother, Mary. And Luke indicates that Mary was related to Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, who is also son of the priest Zechariah. So this creates a line of family relationships with the high priests. And so this would have been kind of, uh, you know, the reason why the high priests, the, the place where they lived, John would have been known in that mm-hmm. home. And so for him to go in, the people would have gone, oh, yeah, no, it's John. We know John. He's part of the family. But Peter, who wasn't, John was the one that let Peter in. So that's just a a little tidbit. The other little tidbit that I wanted to, to just mention is also found in John 13, 36 through 38. And this is a story about Peter that is very well known and talked a lot about where it says, Simon Peter said unto him, Lord, whither goest thou? Jesus answered him, whither I go, thou canst not follow me now, but thou shalt follow me afterwards. Peter said unto him, Lord, why cannot I follow thee now? I will lay down my life for thy sake. Jesus answered him, wilt thou lay down thy life for my sake? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, the cock shall not crow till thou hast denied me thrice. Now, there was a a very famous talk that President Kimball gave at a BYU devotional in 1971 called Peter, My Brother. And it's interesting. I still remember this talk, especially a couple of years later when I was at BYU. I can remember being taught that because of this talk that President Kimball said that this statement from the Lord when he says, the clock, the crock shall not crow till thou hast denied me thrice, that that was more of a command. So, you know, he's commanding Peter saying, you know, you must do this so that you won't die then. And so I kind of went along with that idea until I read this. This was in religious studies 
where they did uh, a kind of a, an analysis of this President Kimball talk. And they said, nowhere in this address does President Kimball directly suggest that the Savior himself commanded Peter to deny knowing him. Although some seem to have deduced that from references to Jesus's directing Peter not to tell anyone that he was the Christ and his prohibiting Peter from trying to keep him from being crucified. In fact, in the end, President Kimball simply maintains, I do not pretend to know what Peter's mental reactions were that night, nor what compelled him to say what he did that terrible night. Nevertheless, President Kimball makes it clear that we should be hesitant to judge the chief apostle and should instead focus on how much experiences that he had after the Savior's crucifixion and resurrection. So that's the point of this kind of long introduction, is that all too often when we're reading these scriptures, we get so involved in these tiny little things, like who was the disciple that brought in Peter? And all right, was that a command? Or was that something that Peter was, you know, that the Savior was prophesying that Peter would do? So my question for you is, why do we have a tendency to want to do the jots and tittles, you know, the little, uh, these little tiny things that really take us away sometimes from the doctrine? Because today we're going to talk a lot about doctrine. We're talking about the atonement. So what are your thoughts? I wonder if in our zeal to search for the deeper meanings of things, to search for um, you know, the greater light and truth that we've been promised. I wonder if maybe our latching on to those things might be part of that. What I do know is that they so often become stumbling blocks because if we get so preoccupied with this one thing here or this one thing here, and that's not even the point of the scripture that we're being led to read, it can pull us away from the real Meet. And we have to be so careful because if you think about it, it really makes no difference to our progression and to our salvation as to whether Peter denied him or whether he was following the commandment. It's, it's a passage of scripture. Really, that's between Peter and the Lord. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't and should not affect our progression. And so for us to spend our time trying to winnow that out, I think that's a misuse of our scripture study time. We should be looking for the things that we can apply to our lives and the things that we should be following rather than trying to solve that mystery. But I, I too, have heard it both ways. Mm-hmm. And it could go either way. And either way, the commandments are still the same. The church is still the same. Covenants are still the same. Nothing's affected by it. And so I'm perfectly content to let it be and let's concentrate on our path and the things that the Savior has asked us to do personally. Now, I know, Christine, that you're going to be talking to us a little bit about this idea of conversion versus knowledge. How does that have to do a little bit with this, you know, being so concerned about was Peter commanded? Was it just something that he reacted to what was happening? What are your thoughts on that? Well, I actually have two things I do with the scriptures. 
I do the thing that you do where you feel inspired and you relate it to your life. But I really like to play with them too. So <laughs> it's maybe the gamester in me. But um, so to me, I find real joy in understanding those corners. But you do have to know that that's just a knowledge game. Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily. Mm -hmm. And sometimes the pieces go together in ways that are unexpected, and then you see them connect, and then suddenly you see something can be new a and deep, and that right. is doctrinal as, you, as you're playing that game. But you do mm -hmm. need to know the difference of what you're doing. Mm -hmm. You're not doing the same thing as scriptures. So I think that there's there can be interest and fun in reading um, President Kimball's talk and then going back and reading the other one and looking at that comparison. But you need to know that, that you're not, in essence, strengthening your doctrinal foundation, you're just like playing with great minds the same mm -hmm. way that you would with philosophy, mm -hmm. because there is a lot of philosophy in the scriptures, but there's also these eternal truths that we guide our lives with. Absolutely. So mm -hmm. is it okay that I play with them? Because sometimes well, I, I like yes. them. <laughs> no, I think, I, I think you said but I have it to exactly know right. We have to understand the balance mm -hmm. and focus on the doctrine. And like you were saying, the stumbling block is when we put so much you know, into this little jaunt and tittle, you know, this little tiny thing that somebody says differently and we get offended mm -hmm. and no, that's not what happened. And right. Or you, or you hook your, your, your testimony there right. as opposed mm -hmm. to Christ himself. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and you're right. I've seen that happen with people that were brilliant and it just breaks your heart because they, they get that sidetracked. So at the end, mm -hmm. Every night when you say your prayer, you're like, I was just playing. Well, <laughs> I like to play sometimes. What that demonstrates to me is that you have a great love of the scriptures. I do. I'm and that you're curious to feast from them. Yes. Right. And so I think that's tremendous. I just think that, as you say, you just keep it in the perspective. Right. right. And to know that you're just having fun and that, that you can separate the difference between the doctrine and the mm -hmm. curiosity seeking. Right. You know, it's like right. we call searching on the internet, going down the rabbit hole. Yeah. yeah. And we yeah. can go down the rabbit hole with the scriptures quite easily and end up somewhere we never expected. And that can be fun. But the conjectures that we draw from it, yeah, we need to be able to take And then at the, the end, you need to bring it back and say, okay, yeah. balance this with what I know. Yeah. Which actually has everything to do with the next thing. Can I go there? Yes, go okay. for it. So it's so interesting because right before um, in Luke 22, um, he said, was it Luke 22 or the other one? I lied. Yeah, it's, it's Luke, Luke 22. 22. Uh -huh. um, right before he talks about um, the... Why am I not on that page? Where does he say? Uh, there it is. Okay. Uh, it's because I was looking at the end, of the, and it's not. It's in the middle. Mm -hmm. So um, when he says that he will deny him three times, right before that, he says, Simon, Simon. Oh, this is Luke 22, verse 31. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have thee, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee, that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. And then he goes right into, and I tell thee, the cock shall not crow. Mm -hmm. And so this is that precursor. But I thought that Simon, Simon, Satan hath desired to have thee. And it's so... Doesn't that like scare you to think Mariana, Mariana, or Tristan, Tristan, yeah. or Christine? Satan hath desired to have thee. And think about what he does that would be your chink in your armor. 
and how he plays at that and 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 fights it. But the Savior prays for us mm-hmm. that our faith will fail not. And when we are converted, then strengthen our brethren. And so I was going to talk about conversion, mm-hmm. and you were going to talk about strengthening. Mm-hmm. And um, Elder Bednar in October 2012 talked about this converted to the Lord. And he said, knowing the gospel is true is the essence of a testimony. And I always thought, you know, when they say I was yesterday years old when I realized, (laughs) (laughs) I won't tell you how years old I was, but it was like within two weeks, Um, (laughs) that knowing the gospel is true is the essence of a testimony, but consistently being true to the gospel is the essence of conversion. And I've always felt so strongly that I knew the gospel was true, that I have seen things and felt things that were so bright and strong. There was no doubt in my mind that the church is true. But then to think that's not conversion. Conversion, Peter knew that. Remember when the Lord said, whom say ye that I am? Right, and he knew. He knew, and Jesus said, blessed art thou, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And so he knew that Jesus was truly the Christ, but obviously he wasn't converted because he said, Mm -hmm. when thou art converted. And so um, conversion is only a beginning point, a point of departure from our old self. And although Peter had seen miracles... Um, he'd been with Christ and felt his love. He still needed to be truly conversion. And Bednar says, Elder Bednar, I did that before and someone was mad at me for just saying Bednar and said, Elder. <laughs> yeah, Elder. Sorry. <laughs> well, I pretend we're on the same team. <laughs> <laughs> so true conversion brings a change in one's beliefs, heart, and life to accept and conform to the will of God and includes a conscious commitment to become a disciple. So this was the part that Elder Bednar said that just really got me. He talked about in the Book of Mormon when Ammon taught the Lamanites that um, they became a righteous people and they did lay down their weapons of rebellion, that they did not fight against the Lord anymore, and now they were converted. And so I thought about our weapons of rebellion. Mm. And I know that some of us don't have as rebellious hearts as others of us at this grouping. (laughs) But um, what kind of weapons of rebellion have you seen in others? You don't have to be personal. Um, I have about a list of six. But I was thinking, <laughs> and I probably sense. do them all. So. <laughs> but do you guys, um, can you think of weapons of rebellion? And I think it's those little things you do, you know, like when you're being passive aggressive against a parent, you don't want to be directly inappropriate. So then they ask you to do something and you do the littlest amount of that thing. So you <laughs> say yes. I think sometimes we're passive aggressive with the Lord and I'll be like, okay, you need to do this. And you're like, okay. I'm going to church, but just church. Then I'm watching what I want to watch. You know, or we we do that passive aggressive thing. Can you think of any other things that are weapons of rebellion? The first one that comes to my mind is pride. Mm-hmm. When we think that we know better than the Lord, or we know better than our bishop or our other person um, seeking to direct us, and we stubbornly cling on. Oh my goodness! To what we believe, and through that stubbornness we're refusing to make ourselves open to the Spirit. I think another weapon of rebellion that we use all too often, especially in today's world, is time. You know, we say, oh, I'm too busy to go to the temple. I'm too busy to go um, to church. You know, I need my Sunday to be able to get everything done that I need to. 
And so oftentimes, but that goes along with that too, is uh, another weapon of, of destruction for us, I think, are our phones, our social media, oh, you know, those things that also take us away from the Lord mm -hmm. and that become an excuse. Okay. And some of the it's things so hard when you go to church and you have your scriptures on your phone because you don't want to lug your heavy scriptures. And then you get a really good text from someone or you get yeah, a, a, a notification on Facebook and someone said something really interesting. And then you're just like, oh, I'll just take this one little comment. And then like, the lesson's over, and you're like, oh, and that was a really good gone. conversation yeah. with Anna, but it wasn't good. Yeah. <laughs> so I do, um, I had, uh, one of the weapons of rebellion maybe not praying, where mm -hmm. you'll still do everything external, you still even do scripture reading with your family, but you don't want to do personal prayer because you're so mad at the Lord because he didn't do what you wanted or didn't give you what you wanted. <laughs> Does that ever happen to you? Well, um, everything should be done my way. <laughs> <laughs> I know, and I, I had watching like edgy media, like when I'm really trying to be good, I'll be like all G-rated, and then you're like, oh, but it's just, so you do the one little- The one um, scene. I know. And then, um, oh, I liked your attitudes of pride, and it just reminded me so much of, uh, there was a gospel doctrine teacher who used to talk so slow. <laughs> and I used to have prayers like saying, Lord, can't you just make his brain work a little bit faster because it's driving me insane. And so I had these, but you know what I did is I slowly like really tried to repeat every one of his words in my head so that it would slow down my brain. And I found that actually after a year of listening to his, his lessons, I found I was more attentive at the temple because I had learned how to slow down my brain and follow a slower train of thought. And it took me a That's year, a blessing, but right? it took a long time for me to let go of that pride and think, if I pray hard enough, why can't you just have him released? Like, <laughs> Well, then you'd be the very next one called. Uh, no, no, That's that would not happen. <laughs> Every time I've been critical of someone in their calling. Oh, well, and that's another I'm weapon of rebellion is, is rehearsing critical. Our doubts is being critical of those yeah. in authority. Okay. And we're really doing it to rebel against God because we're not trusting in him. Mm -hmm. So part of conversion isn't just the one put together. Mm -hmm. So um, the last thing I loved about this was that um, Elder Bednar said that um, the extra oil we carry in the vessel are those things that we do that build our conversion. So every time we give our will to the Lord's, Every time we, instead of spending our time the way we think it should be spent, we give it to the Lord. That's those drops of oil. And I love that in um, the Garden of Gethsemane was a, an olive grove where that oil was made. And there's right. even an oil press there. Right. And so as we think of those drops of oil, sorry, <laughs> where do they come from? They come from the Savior. And as we pay for them, with our true conversion, with giving our will to the Lord, then we fill our vessels so they will be filled. And that is so different than just knowing the gospel's true. That's living the gospel. And I and I think that's so interesting, too, because when we think of in the Book of Mormon, we always talk about Laman and Lemuel. I am sure, you know, they saw angels. They, they knew it was they true. They knew it was true. That wasn't the question. But it was this idea of conversion, and and I think how many of us, because of those weapons of rebellion, you know, know I, it's true. I know, but it and I struggle difficult. with people that have had moments where they know, 
and then turn from that. And I can't understand it, but it really is this anchor of conversion mm-hmm. that they're like, in the end, the Lord will see that I'm still doing good things, just not mm-hmm. in the church that's not annoying me so much. Mm-hmm. Right. right. And so I don't know, but I think there's such beauty in true conversion. And we find things like gifts you'd never expect. Well, and the word conversion truly does mean to change. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, as we started talking, I was thinking about conversion from a scientific or chemical type of interesting of direction, which I mm-hmm. never do. I'm not scientific at all. But if you take an element, you can convert it by um, sometimes administering heat or administering cold, you know, subjecting it to different um, uh, stimuli. And it will convert it to a different element. Or let's take ice, for instance. We take water and we convert it to ice by subjecting it to the cold temperature of the freezer. And so when we become converted, we're allowing the things that are acting upon us to create a change. And it truly has to be a change in order for the conversion to be real. I agree. I just wanted to end with when Christ was um, praying at the intercessory prayer, he talks about those that um, God has given me, mm-hmm. those that were converted and become children of Christ. And he says that not one will fall away, that the only one that falls away was the one who was a fulfillment of prophecy, which right. Judas Iscariot. Right. But then he talks about us becoming those same children of Christ in the mm-hmm. intercessory prayer. And when we are converted and become the children of Christ, we're promised that we will not fall away, that not one of us would be lost. And Elder Bednar at the end of this talk gives that same, I promise you that as you come to a knowledge of the truth, have that Mm -hmm. point of knowledge and are converted, that you will never fall away. And it's the conversion, not the knowledge that helps us to be connected to the vine. Mm -hmm. And I think that idea of the connected to the vine and the fruit is conversion, is that point of connection. I love that. Well, just as we can become changed to become more holy, we can also be changed back the other way. So there's a decision that has to be made with our free agency once we are changed to stay changed Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and not to get swayed back the other way. Well, I know you were going to talk about how to strengthen that mm-hmm. conversion. Absolutely. So what I loved is at the beginning of that verse that Christine read us, but I have prayed for thee. Mm. The Savior prayed for him. Mm-hmm. Isn't that a lovely thought? Because we know he prays for us too. And that just touches my heart on so many levels that the Savior prays for me. So he goes on to talk with Peter about strengthening his brethren. And it is so much easier to stand firm in something when you're not by yourself. When you have a support system, either standing there next to you or knowing that they exist, even if they're not physically present, Mm -hmm. it is so much easier to be confident in what you're saying. And when we met last time, we discussed how the Holy Ghost is there to give us confidence to stand up for those things. And this time we're talking about strengthening each other as we stand up in those things. 
and part of what we're doing today and part of what our readers and our listeners are participating in is we are strengthening each other by sharing our thoughts and our beliefs. And the Savior wanted Peter to do very much the same for his brethren in talking about the points of the gospel and reminding each other what they had learned and rehearsing into each other what they had learned and to express gratitude for the things and to seek after more light and knowledge. And by doing these things together, it would solidify in their minds the teachings. You know, the more you read your scriptures, the more you go to church, the more you go to the temple, it becomes stronger and stronger. And the more that they would gather and talk about these things, the more they would remember and know the lessons that they had been taught. And then having that knowledge would give them the confidence to go into these situations because we also talked at the end of our last get-together the persecution Mm -hmm. that these men were going to go through. And when you go through historically and you read, oh my goodness, Mm. killed this way and killed that way and chased by lions and all the other things, Mm -hmm. they had to have this foundation. They had to have the sure word to back them up, to put them in these situations. And so having that opportunity to share gave them strength. And that strength, then as their hearers saw them preach with strength, that made them realize this is a strong concept. If that person can stand up there and face the Pharisees, who are obviously not willing to listen and to face their their mockery and their eventual persecution and and um, putting of them to death, there must be something to it. And so that strength would roll forward mm-hmm. and it would go from a few people sitting together to share the gospel together and become something that could be shared around. And so I was thinking about how does this apply to us today? That's what I love to do with the scriptures is I look at them like, okay, this happened to this person. Mm-hmm. How does it affect me today? What am I personally to learn from this? Well, what is fast and testimony meeting? Oh, definitely. If not strengthening your brother and yeah. your sisters. Yeah. We come together and we share our testimonies of the Savior and other people who hear us become strengthened by hearing it. And we solidify it for ourselves as we speak it. Mm-hmm. Well, they talk about when the word is spoken aloud, it becomes stronger and it kind of takes on life of its own. It does the same thing for us. If I bear you my testimony verbally, it becomes stronger inside of me. Mm-hmm. And so it blesses both of us. And so that's what fast and testimony meeting does mm-hmm. is it gives us all that opportunity to share. And then we have the same opportunity when we go and do our ministering and we sit with our sisters and we share our experiences and we have daily opportunities to share our testimony and to witness. Uh, We're all mothers. Mm -hmm. How many of us have had long conversations with our children about the gospel? My children like having these conversations 
around midnight, one o'clock, two o'clock in the morning. And they'll come in just as I'm getting ready for bed. And they'll look at me with their earnest little faces and say, Mom, talk to me about God and how do you send them to bed? You can't. So we have fantastic conversations in the middle of the night. But as we interact with friends and family, even on social media, mm-hmm. we have the opportunity to share these feelings and these thoughts that we have. And this is also why we're encouraged to go to church. Mm-hmm. There are so many arguments out there that are made for, oh, I feel closer to the Lord when I go out into the woods and so forth. The woods are a beautiful place to commune with the Spirit. But we need the companionship of each other. Mm-hmm. Because we need to strengthen our brethren. Mm -hmm. I take strength from you. Hopefully you take some strength from me. And as we do that together, we bolster each other up. And I think especially women to women and men to men. And that's why another little uh, Tristy opinion moment that is not doctrinal but may or may not be fascinating is I think that's why we have Relief Society and we have priesthood meetings, not because those men are talking about things they don't want us <laughs> to know, do, know. <laughs> the deep, dark priesthoody things. Mm-hmm. I think it's because women relate to each other differently mm-hmm. and I men relate to each other differently. I agree. And each of these things help us to strengthen each other. Mm-hmm. See, and I also think that it allows like a girl's night out and a boy's night out. Absolutely. And so there's that social connection too <laughs> that makes me a little sad, isn't it? And sometimes there are things that we need to talk about that... Those boys just need <laughs> don't need to hear. <laughs> so my question for the two of you ladies is, what experiences have you had either with friends or, you know, ministering sister or whatever, where they've shared something with you or you've shared something with them and you've come away from that conversation feeling strengthened? Well, yesterday I was prepping. And as I was prepping, I tried, I was like, nothing is going to get in my way. And then Sarah came over because she was just feeling lonely and brought her children. And then the dog had to go to the vet suddenly because it had an issue. And then I came back and I was like, okay, I am reading about conversion and strength of my brethren and love. And I got a call from one of my ministering sisters and they said, one of our sisters is struggling. She's had an operation, but she's still recovering. So can you come with me? And I'm like, Dango, bango. But I came because I was just reading about loving. And it was so funny because we sat down and um and I was so strengthened by every word she said. She had been a previous Relief Society president before all the little housing and the apartment units were made in this area. And there are a lot of older women in our ward who are widows. Mm-hmm. And um and she told me how they all kind of were all in the same ward together. And as young mothers, they were so close. And I've always felt like they were this little clump that I would never be part of. And now I suddenly understand why I'm feeling that way. <laughs> right. And it was so cute because one of them was really nice to me on Sunday. And I was like, oh, no, she's part of the group I'll never be part of. <laughs> but I, but then I was like, oh, I've got to mellow out about this because I can understand their feelings mm-hmm. of the shift and change in their society. And it just... Anyway, I it the whole thing just opened my mind and let me see where I live with clearer eyes and let me feel more a part of the culture that I didn't understand. Mm-hmm. And I was so strengthened because it was church culture, right. which I'm not good at. <laughs> and so it was good for me. And I was so blessed and strengthened by our 
I know it doesn't sound Christ-focused, but it really did help me in so many ways with what I've been struggling with in the place that I live. And it was a blessing. I was just really grateful for well, it. Well, and I think the little things but it, oftentimes <laughs> mean the most when we talk about, um, you know, uh, I walk in the mornings with some of my wonderful sisters in our ward. And for me, that just buoys me up for the rest of the day. You know, I have that mm-hmm. opportunity to talk and, and we we talk gospel, we talk scripture, but we also talk about our own needs and our families and our children and, you know, who who needs help in the community? What can we do? And those wonderful opportunities of of talking together as women and disciples of Christ, I mm-hmm. think, are so strengthening, just as you mm-hmm. were talking about. And I think, too, that when you hear someone share their worries, you will very often, through the Spirit, have words put into your mouth to share with them that can be just as much for you as it is for them. Yeah. Thereby strengthening both of you. Well, and as we are converted and we have this knowledge and this strengthening, I do want to talk for a moment about the atonement. That's kind of the doctrinal foundation of what we're discussing today. And if we go to Luke 22, we have um, some some beautiful moments to see about the Savior where he um, goes off to Gethsemane. And then uh, when he came to that place, he said unto them, pray that you enter not into temptation. And I love the way that even from that very beginning, he knows what he's going to be going to. But who is he concerned about? You know, he's concerned about Peter, James, and John. You know, pray that you will not be in under t- temptation. Boy, that's a hard word. I'm having a problem with temptation. And then he we was. We all have a problem. With we all have problems with temptation. <laughs> and he and was, they were supposed to keep watch so that Christ can pray, so the temptation would be not right. to fulfill this assignment. That's the most important assignment in the world, because that Christ moment, is going definitely. through in the, the sacrifice. World. Right. Right. Well, I think of all time. Of all time. Probably. Oh, you yes, think about right. it. And this is what they're remembered mm-hmm. for. How sad. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> that they fall asleep. And mm-hmm. he was withdrawn from them about a stone's cast and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And I love this next verse. And there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was as if were great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Well, I also wanted to point to the the Joseph Smith translation of that Mm -hmm. verse, and he sweat as it were great drops of blood. And as I think about that, I think, why is the atonement necessary? Why was it that the Savior had to go through this terrible agony where he suffered my sins, he suffered my pains? It was a very personal moment for each one of us, but also for him. And I brought us back to this idea of the original garden, you know, the Garden of Eden, that Adam and Eve became fallen. And because of that, they were cast out of the garden. And now all of us are fallen from the presence of God. And in this fallen state, we had to have an atonement or we could not return to him. And so I think about that, and that seems like 
such a different, you know, it's a difficult concept because it is something that's so out of our, our worldly lives, you know, mm-hmm. instead thinking about what does the Garden of Eden look like? What does that seem like? Why should I be so worried about this? What does the atonement have to do with me? But I love this talk by Elder Richard G. Scott, because he talked very specifically about the atonement and why should I care? What does it have to do with me in my life? And he said, without the atonement, Father in Heaven's plan of happiness could not have been placed fully into effect. The atonement gives all, and that means every single person, the opportunity to overcome the consequences of mistakes made in life. When we obey a law, we receive a blessing. When we break a law, there is nothing left over from prior obedience to satisfy the demands of justice for that broken law. The Savior's atonement permits us to repent of any disobedience and thereby avoid the penalties that justice would have imposed. The other thing I just wanted to point out was the power of the Book of Mormon to understand this. I think sometimes when we just read the New Testament, this is another opportunity for us to look to our modern-day scriptures to understand the atonement more fully. When we look at the Book of Mormon and the Doctrine and Covenants, there are so many passages of scripture that can open our eyes and our understanding of why the atonement is so important. And I just picked one, you know, Alma 42, and I'm going to read verses um, 14 and 15. And thus we see, and I always love those, (laughs) and thus we see moments in the Book of Mormon, and thus we see that all mankind were fallen, and they were in the grasp of justice, yea, the justice of God, which consigned them forever to be cut off from his presence. So without an atonement, we would be cut off from returning to our Heavenly Father. And now the plan of mercy could not be brought about except an atonement should be made. Therefore God himself atoneth for the sins of the world to bring about the plan of mercy to appease the demands of justice that God might be a perfect, just God and a merciful God also. So I just wanted to ask both of you, how have you learned about the atonement? How have you gained that realization? Because it's kind of, atonement is a hard concept. It really is to understand what does this really have to do with me in my life and, and why is it so important? Mercy and justice, grace, all of those are difficult concepts, I think, sometimes to think about. But I just wanted to know, how did you come to a testimony and understanding of atonement? If you don't mind my taking a little bit of a sideways um, tack, I gained my understanding of the atonement from C.S. Lewis, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Mm -hmm. When I read the scene at the stone altar, Mm -hmm. and I read it as a child and understood quite clearly the symbolism in it, But then when they came out with a movie and that big, beautiful lion, sorry, now I'm going to get teary. We'll just be the teary sisters (laughs) over here. That big, beautiful lion. And we have the white witch and she's cutting off his mane. Mm -hmm. And he lays down on that altar and he subjects himself to what she's doing to him. Mm -hmm. 
And she's, she's in her element. She thinks she's won. And even with his mane shorn, and even with those cords tying him to the table, he is absolutely majestic. And I cannot see that movie, or as you can see, think about that movie without thinking about our Savior and how even as he endured that pain, even as he endured that mockery, he was majestic in everything because of who he is and because of his belief in what he was doing. But I I think back on that scene and and the white witch is exulting in all these things and you know, there must be a price paid and and you know, you have to to make this up to me. And he says to her, Do not quite do not quote the old magic to me. I was there when it was written. Mm -hmm. And that always strikes me because the Savior has been involved in our Heavenly Father's plan from the beginning, and he understands it more perfectly mm -hmm. than anyone ever could aside from the Father himself. And with all that knowledge and all that understanding, he subjected himself to the law for us. And so I just, <laughs> I just have to sit and sob when I think about the majesty of him putting himself in the hands of men who would subject him to such cruel and demeaning acts. And he let them because he loves us. Mm -hmm. And because he knew that what he was doing would allow us to come back to him. That goes and to so the... that movie, a book it. in that movie, if, you, if you're like me, if you're a visual learner, and if you learn best through, excuse me, through story and through parables, C.S. Lewis was truly a man who understood Christianity once he woke up to it and he didn't for a long time <laughs> and then one day the light went off and he became so inspired with everything but he laid it out in beautiful terms for everyone from children through adults to understand but i my appreciation I love it. for the atonement just went through the roof when i had the chance to see it presented that way i I'm fascinated because my husband's walking, watching The Chosen, and he has been so touched by that representation of Christ. And I think for me, I have not enjoyed that as much just because I'm such a detail person and I'm thinking, oh, that, oh, I. But, <laughs> but for Greg, he loves that. And, it, mm -hmm. and it's the same as you with, with this uh, land in which in the wardrobe, but um, I'm the C.S. Lewis. But it's interesting because for me, um, I do have to say that you get glimpses different ways. Mm -hmm. And I think that each one of us, the Lord speaks to us in our language. When it, when we turn our heart to the atonement, we find it different ways. And I, it was interesting because as you were talking, I had forgotten and, and had not thought about this in a while. But as a, a, a girl, when we used to go to primary after uh, school, mm -hmm. And I remember coming in and there was a woman playing um, the organ and 
I had never heard the song and it opened the hymn book and I found magically, not magically through the Lord, <laughs> the song and it was, there is a green hill far away. And um, I followed those words and not many nights after that, and I don't know if I've shared this and I'm just going to share it, but I um, was sleeping and in a dream, I was standing on a flat, like um, a rooftop and um, everyone was sad and I could feel the sadness. And there was a person beside me that said, look, and I could see the crosses on the hill. And I knew that Christ had done that for me. And it made it so real. And um, it's interesting, I think sometimes that we that some of us need that early because otherwise we never would have stayed stapled. <laughs> but um, he knew our challenges and, and the different things in our lives. And I think that different people, some people are given those moments and some people don't need them because they'll stay faithful or they're touched through those parables given in other forms. And we each, as we read the scriptures, the spirit teaches us in the way that is our love language. Right. And I do think along with that, as you were describing your vision, sometimes our vision is through the scriptures. And I think very specifically about our, you know, first Nephi, when he talks about his vision of the tree of life and that whole vision, which is about the condescension of God right. and what is the tree of life and how to make it there and grab of that white glorious fruit, which is symbolized of the love of God. Right that as we think about these analogies, that it, we can too see what you saw, right. you know, have the experience that you had. We can each one of us be taught and have that testimony of the atonement very personally, because I think that's what we must have in order to partake of the atoning sacrifice. We have to have that personal connection, just like our wonderful Savior had that personal connection in terms of at this wonderful Garden of Gethsemane moment mm -hmm. where he was taking upon himself very individually my sins. And so I also have to have that same personal connection to the atonement in terms of my understanding of what does that mean? What does the mean that the fact that the Savior took upon himself my sins? What is justice? What is mercy? How can I gain the grace that I need to return to him someday. And so I know, Christine, that you were going to talk more about how this should affect our lives, but I, I want us to think of the personal nature of why we have to understand the atonement. It is critical to everything, who we are and why we're here on this earth and our returning back to our Heavenly Father and our Savior. I um, When I was teaching seminary, um, one of the things that we did was we did the donut experience. Have you heard of that one where um, you bring a, a bunch of donuts, one for each person in the class, and then you ask one of the children if they will do 10 push-ups so that this person can have a donut. And at Oh, it's first, like the marshmallow. Have you seen the marshmallow experiment? It's very similar. Oh, it's well, at first, the pers first person... I like person, donuts better. Oh, like takes the marshmallow, the marshmallow. And the person does 10 push-ups. And, and, and the little boy I had, his name was Quentin Openlander. And he said, I'm doing 20. And we had a class of 25 
So how many is that? That's like 500 push-ups or something. And he was just sure he could do it. So he starts doing his 20 push-ups per donut. And the first person takes their donut. And um, the next person is on a diet, doesn't want his donut, but he does the push-ups anyway. And at first you're thinking, okay, they're getting it. And they're like, he doesn't have to. And it's like, no, he's willing to do this sacrifice so that you can have this, whether you use it or not. And then you go to the next person in the class. Well, this little boy is turning red and he's sweating and he has to go to school afterwards. Yeah. And you're like, honey, you only have to do 10, I promise. And he keeps on going and going. And in the end, he was just he was, I just felt so badly that I had even asked him. <laughs> but that is what the Savior did for us, whether we take. And I remember that day just feeling that same feeling of the Lord was willing. And he, this boy was so willing, such a good boy. And he just was baptized. I mean, married in the temple. So he's a good boy. <laughs> he's a good boy. <laughs> he is. But I, I will always remember he also taught me about... Um, the Savior, but I loved what um, President Nelson said in the April 2017 talk in conjunction with what you just said about Nephi and the tree, mm -hmm. because um, President Nelson, in drawing the power of Jesus Christ into our lives, said, it is doctrinally incomplete to speak of the Lord's atoning sacrifice by shortcut phrases, such as applying the atonement or just the atonement, that it's all connected and when we see the tree and him taking of the fruit, the suffering isn't part of that. We know it took great suffering to put the tree there. Right. And we understand the atonement, but it's also the glory and joy of the fruit. Mm -hmm. And sometimes if we get too focused on the suffering part, we miss the joy part. Because the whole point of his suffering was for us to feel the joy. Well, and the partaking of the fruit is where right. the joy comes. So it's not just seeing the fruit. No, it's actually... It's actually... The conversion. Right? It's the conversion. Exactly. That's true. And having it truly change us. Um, in that same talk, President Nelson encouraged us that we should learn of him. And that's what you were saying is through the scriptures. And he had encouraged um, the youth to go and read every citation mm -hmm. that talked about Christ in the topical guide. And then to study the living Christ document. And I love the living Christ because it is a living Christ. And um, I was saying that when I had my first child, um, his little hand was up by his face. So when he was born, his elbow hit and I had no pain medication. And I was hoarse by how loud I screamed. It was so painful. You could have cut off my head and I wouldn't have noticed. And at the end of it, I had broken all the blood vessels in my face. And um, I, pain is pain. Right. But um, that didn't make me love that child more. But that child, I loved him more than you can imagine. And I remember holding him and thinking, it's not the pain. It's that feeling of love mm -hmm. that Christ was willing to do anything for me. And I think that with our parents, often it's not just that our mother suffered to have us or that our father endured my ridicule and anger when I was a teenager, <laughs> but that um, that they they were patient and, and taught and loved and sacrificed. And I think even now, sometimes the way we feel the atonement is by having those moments now that we've talked about, having those moments where we feel the comforting 
of the gift of the comforter, because that is the words of Christ comforting us. Those are the moments that we're having connections with Christ, our answers to prayer. Our prayers wouldn't go to heaven if it wasn't for Christ's atonement. And so as we get answers that are miraculous, uh, my 28-year-old son is dating miraculous. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so happy. Um, but those moments, we just feel such joy. I remember at um, our father's death, and I'll be done, but um, we were all sitting there and our brother was talking about things that were kind of um, to, to, anyway, pull us away. And I said to him, it's not these little minutiae that we had talked about at the beginning. Right. It's that when I kneel down to pray, I get answers. Right. It's that when I am struggling with grief, I am comforted. It's that when I don't know what to do, the Lord gives me an answer that would be something I would never come up with myself, and it works. And those living Christ moments are what make the atonement most powerful for me. Do you mind if I hop in here just of real course. quick? The thing that I am appreciating so much about this discussion is we have not talked about sin. Mm -hmm. We've been talking oh, about wow. the healing <laughs> of our souls, and we've been talking about relationships. And I think that this conversation is so important because most people, when they think about the atonement, they think about repentance from sins. Right. And they don't understand that oh. the atonement is so much more. more. It goes beyond that. The Savior took upon himself our sorrows. He took upon himself our griefs. And our infirmities. Our infirmities. He took Physical. upon us our multiple sclerosis. Mm -hmm. He took upon that mean thing that our neighbor said. Mm -hmm. He took upon us, um, you know, the, the worst that we went through. Everything we go through, the atonement covers because it covers our total human experience. Right. And we can take him anything. Mm -hmm. And I saw a quote on Facebook the other day which just made me want to just <sighs> argue on Facebook, but we know that's not a good idea. Talking about how God only cares about, God only cares about us worshiping him. He doesn't care about anything else. I thought, oh, that's just not right. Yeah. The things that matter to us matter to him because he loves us. Mm -hmm. And if we're sorrowing for anything, big or small, he's sorrowing too. And he invites us and he begs us and he pleads with us to bring him those sorrows. So don't just think about the atonement as your path to repentance, even though it is, and it's wonderful and beautiful and so needed, but it's your path to all healing, mm -hmm. be it from sin or from sorrow or from um, the stresses of going through an illness, whatever it may be, it covers all of it. And I love... That's beautiful that we're focusing on the relationship aspect of it because that's what it all comes back down to. Wow. I love that too. As we come to the end, I do want to turn to back to this idea of truth. And we're going to go to John 18. And um, I'm looking at 28, 29, 31. We're going to see what, what happens. At the end of after this wonderful atonement experience, 
we see the exact opposite of what we were talking about mm-hmm. in that we have Caiaphas and the Hall of Judgment. This is all happening. He's brought before the people. And we started with this idea of truth. And I want to end with the idea of truth. And as you were talking about how knowledge and conversion are completely different, we're going to see how Pilate really does know who the Savior is. You know, we're going to see how he knows who he is, and yet that does not mean he's going to stop what's going to happen. He says here in 28, Then led they Jesus from Caiaphas unto the hall of judgment, and it was early, and they themselves went not into the judgment hall, and this is the one that is so ironic, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. And of course, the Passover is a symbol of the Savior. Right. And they won't go into the judgment hall because they don't want to be defiled, and yet they're trying to get the Savior they're killed. they the <laughs> Pilate then went out into them and said, What accusation bring ye against the man? And then um, they said to Pilate, Take ye him and judge him according to your law. The Jews therefore said unto Pilate, it is not lawful for us to put any man to death. So at this point, you know, Pilate was like, okay, fine. You know, he's a malefactor. You take care of it. But they're trying to say, no, we want you to put him to death, which is something completely different than what Pilate was thinking about. And then if we turn, he turns to the Savior and he takes the Savior and he starts talking to him and he says, art thou the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. I'm skipping around, so I'm not reading as much, but reading verse 37. Pilate therefore said unto him, art thou a king then? Jesus answered, thou sayest that I am a king. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. And then Pilate says, what is truth? And for me, the significance of that goes to the next chapter 19 in John, verses 19, 20, and 21, where the Savior now is put up on the cross and realize Pilate did not want to crucify the Savior. He washes his hands and says, well, you know, fine, this is totally on you, and not on me. And gives them another option. Too. And gives them another option because he, by law is kind of, his hands are kind of tied, right, you know, right. so he has, to he has to do it. And so, but then Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross. And the writing was Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. This title then read many of the Jews for the place where Jesus was crucified was nigh to the city, meaning it was right in a place where people were going back and forth all the time. And it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. So anybody could read it. It didn't matter what language. Those are the three main languages of that whole area. Then said the chief priests of the Jews to Pilate, write not the king of the Jews, but that Pilate said, I am, you know, but that he said, I am king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. And so I just wanted to talk just as we conclude about truth. And absolute truth is defined as things that are the same yesterday, today, and forever. They're never changing. And that's found in Doctrine and Covenants 9324. And as I was thinking about that, I thought of our own wonderful prophet, President Nelson. 
He said, some things are simply true. The arbiter of truth is God, not your favorite social media newsfeed, not Google, and certainly not those who are disaffected from the church. And then he says, many now claim that truth is relative and that there is no such thing as divine law or divine plan. Such a claim is simply not true. There is a difference between right and wrong. Truth is based upon the laws God has established for the dependability, protection, and nurturing of his children. Eternal laws operate in and affect each of our lives, whether we believe them or not. So as we conclude, I want to ask you, how have you seen this idea of absolute truth versus relative truth? something that we deal with a lot in our life today. And what are your thoughts on that? We hear a lot today about people saying, I'm going to go find my truth. Or um, or things along that line. And relative truth, for me, this is me, going off on my own, you know that I do this, it allows for a lot of excuse making. Whereas the absolute truth is a compass that is never failing, whether we like where it's pointing or not. And for me, and I, Christine and I were talking about this earlier, sometimes that's how I know that I'm being inspired is if I'm hearing something I don't really want to hear. (laughs) And I have to subject my will to understand that I'm the one in the wrong. When I am justifying myself, when I'm making excuses for myself, it's very easy to fall into that trap of relative truth, of of, um, compromise and cutting myself more slack than I should. And, and uh, I'm, I'm going to, let's say, keeping the Sabbath day holy, let's use that as an example. I might excuse, you know, this behavior because I'm tired and I need to rest. So I'm going to pop in this movie or, you know, just, just whatever. We lie to ourselves when we don't ascribe to a true compass because we are not proper compasses of ourselves. If we were, we wouldn't need a savior. Yeah. That's true. We That's wouldn't true. have needed this whole earth life experience. If we, if we were totally, honestly, left to my own devices, this would be a bad deal. Yeah. Okay? I, this, this is not to be fully trusted right here. I need that sure compass. Oh, I love you. That's and that true. is what the savior is. And that oh, is what our Heavenly Father gave to us. Absolute truth. Absolute yeah. truth. And if we follow that, we will not go astray. That's true. It's when we seek to justify ourselves that we wander off and get lost. Well, I just wanted to end with uh, President Kimball's words where he talked about absolute truth. And he said, absolute truth cannot be altered by the opinions of men. If men are really humble, they will realize that they discover but not create truth. Nice. And so as we end today, I think that we have talked a lot of doctrinal truths, especially about the atonement. And I hope and pray that all of us can have that personal understanding of the truth of the atonement in our lives. So thank you for this wonderful discussion. Thank you. 